Let's turn in the scriptures to Mark chapter 2. We're now in our third week of studying the gospel according to Mark together as a church. Just a few basic reminders. The gospel that we're studying was written about 30 years after the events that it records. John Mark, the young man who wrote it, he was probably 10 or 15 years younger than Jesus, probably in his early 20s when he committed his life to Jesus. He was convinced Jesus was the crucified, risen, ascended, and returning king. One of the first gatherings of believers in Jerusalem actually met in Mark's family home in the city. Throughout Mark's adult life, he would plant and pastor churches along with Peter and Paul. With Paul, he actually began planting churches um, beginning around 47 AD, so within about 15 years of the central events of the gospel. Mark was helping Paul and Barnabas plant churches um, in the eastern Mediterranean regions, Syria, and up into Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And about a decade later, He's co-laboring. He's a teammate with Peter, pastoring, supporting churches in the city of Rome. So Mark himself, who writes this gospel, was an eyewitness of some of the events of the gospel. Mark himself was a teammate, uh, an experienced teammate over a few decades, an experienced teammate of some of Jesus' lead ambassadors, like Peter and Paul. And he himself apparently was a very effective pastor and evangelist. He's the one writing this account. Now, if church history records are trustworthy, and I think particularly the records of Papias, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, and Irenaeus, who was a pastor in the southern regions of France, I think the records about them are accurate, then what Mark was actually doing was transmitting to us in writing the things that Peter conveyed verbally. Mark probably came to a point in his life where he was teaming with Peter in the early 60s, and he's realizing that Peter's life has been under threat for a long time. He's been in prison several times. He could be facing persecution, maybe even martyrdom. And I need to put in writing what Peter has been answering. Whenever someone comes to Peter, the lead disciple, and asks him, who's Jesus and why does it matter for my life? I've heard Peter give the answer. I've heard him give it short and long. I need to put it into writing so that after Peter passes from the scene, his testimony doesn't. That's what church history records is the gospel according to Mark. I think those records are accurate. So now we're reviewing chapters one and two. If you went to Peter and you said, so who's Jesus and why does it matter? Well, based on our first study in Mark 1, 1 through 39, Peter would have said something like this. Jesus is the son of God and he came to destroy Satan. Anyone who wants to follow Jesus has to repent. If you want to experience the life without sin and death and the curse, life without the, the influence of, of Satan and the fall he, he caused, if you want to experience life without the curse, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from being your own authority, and you've got to commit your life decisively and perseveringly to Jesus 
God's chosen king for the planet. That's where Peter would start. Jesus came to do battle with Satan. You want to experience life apart from the curse? You need to repent, turn. You need to follow Jesus. Then James last week really stressed in chapter 2, end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, the initial and dominant impression that Jesus left on Peter is that this man loves to forgive people. He loves to forgive. He's willing to forgive. Don't question his heart. He wants to forgive. He desires to forgive. And he can. He has the authority to forgive. And Jesus actually summed it up. He said, I came to be like the doctor for sick people. I came on a mission to forgive. So if you had gone to Peter and you had said, you had said, so who's Jesus and why does it matter? Within like five minutes of Peter getting into his answer, he would be saying, Jesus loves to forgive. And James just really powerfully stressed last week that this loving forgiveness of Jesus should, should characterize our lives. We should run to him for forgiveness. We should remember throughout our lives that we are forgiven and can be forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future, through Jesus. We shouldn't live under the guilt of our sin, but in the reality of Jesus' forgiveness. And James really stressed at the end of his message that we should, like Matthew, like this tax collector invites people into, the, into his home and tells them about Jesus. We should be people who want to tell others about the forgiveness that Jesus is willing and able to give. And uh, this was a very helpful, helpful message. These are the first impressions. If you ask, who's Jesus and why does it matter, it'd begin right here. Now today, we're going to read three more unforgettable moments in the life of Jesus. These events took place in Galilee, so today it would take about an hour, hour and a half to drive from Jerusalem up into the region of Galilee. It's the northern region of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. And what you're going to see as we read through these three accounts is that there is an escalation in conflict. In chapter 1, Jesus had come to do war with Satan. He confronted demons. In chapter 2, he angered the religious leaders of his day. He claimed to forgive sin. And he loved the dregs of society. And that angered the leaders of his day. And in the three accounts we read today, the escalation continues. And when we get to the last verse of today's account, you're going to see they want him destroyed. We begin reading in, uh, in verse 18. Let me just kind of forecast where we're going. I need to say that the passage is a little difficult. It's going to take some explanation as we're reading and a little bit after. It's critical that we get the, the point of this passage. It's life-shaping for every follower of Jesus. But it's a little bit difficult if you're not Jewish. If, like, fasting has not been a part of your life to this point, then you might not get what's going on here. If you've never been concerned about Sabbath-keeping, if you're not a Jew, then you're probably not going to get immediately why this passage matters for you, why it matters for people, no matter what their background so it's going to take a little bit of explanation. So I'm going to read, and throughout the passage, I'm going to offer some explanations, especially in the second paragraph. I'm going to have to stop and talk about the David uh, going to uh, Abiathar, this, uh, this incident. And then when we finish reading the passage, I'm going to explain the three points of it and, and apply them and then wrap up with the main point. 
So every one of the points of explanation is gonna end with application, how this should shape our lives. And then we'll, we'll wrap up with the main point and conclude by singing, Jesus saves. So let's begin reading in chapter two, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, if you're not familiar with it, fasting refers to intentionally skipping meals and then using your hunger pains as prayer prompts. You're hungry, and instead of eating, you cry out to God, fulfill your promises, fulfill the promises that you've made. That's what fasting is. Now, history records that at this time, the Pharisees would fast twice a week. Monday was a fast day, and Thursday was a fast day. Now, according to the Old Testament law, the only fasting that was required of Jews actually happened on the Day of Atonement. And you can see Leviticus 16, you can see Leviticus, uh, Numbers 29 regarding that required fast, the Day of Atonement. There was one required fast day. The Pharisees fasted much more regularly, and they're asking Jesus, why don't you and your disciples fast? And here's what happened. People came to him and said, why do John's disciples and even the followers of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? Verse 19, Jesus said, can the wedding party fast while the groom is with them? As long as the groom's there, they can't fast. Now, days are going to come when the groom's taken away from them. And then they'll fast in that day. So what Jesus is saying is, I'm the groom. And if you know the Old Testament, you know that Jesus is actually claiming to be God. He is the Lord, who is the sacrificial lover, the covenant-keeping lover of his people, according to Hosea 2. And when he says that the groom at one point is going to be taken away, he's actually anticipating the age that we live in today. It's the time between his first and second comings, the first coming of the groom and the second coming of the groom, something that none of his disciples at this point understood, but later they would. And Jesus gives two illustrations about the significance of the groom being present. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, if he does, the patch is it's going to tear away from it. The new from the old, and the, the, the tear is going to get worse. Second illustration, verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine is going to burst the skins, and the wine is going to be destroyed. So will the skins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. So that's the first episode that escalates the controversy. He doesn't fast like the Jews think he should. And then Mark's going to recall two controversies over the Sabbath. And of course, I know this might seem basic to some of you, but Sabbath is the seventh day of the week, or Saturday. And on that day, God had commanded people to stop working. Verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, you need to know that Technically, God had said that this was fine to do. Passing through someone else's field, you were allowed to pick a couple, couple heads of grain and eat them. No problem with that. What was actually forbidden in the law was 
gearing up your crew for a whole day of harvesting. Not allowed on Sabbath. But going through, eating a few heads of grain, satisfying your hunger, it's fine. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God. This is referring to the tabernacle that was a tent at the time. In the time or around the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And they ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for anyone but priests to eat. And they also gave it to those who were with him. David ate bread that was not allowed to be eaten, and he actually gave it to his soldiers. Now, I need to take a little time to explain this incident. Jesus refers to the occasion that's recorded in 1 Samuel 21. This is about a thousand years before Jesus. David is the king anointed by God who is going to reign after Saul. But David, at this point in history, was on the run. Saul wanted him dead because Saul considered him uh, a threat to his, to his rule. David and his soldiers were hiding from King Saul, and they were hungry. They were in need of food. And David ran to the town of Nod, where the tabernacle was at the time, and he asked the priest Ahimelech for food. The only food that Ahimelech, the priest, could come up with was the food that was set inside the tabernacle that was only intended for priests. David asked Ahimelech, give me that bread. I need it for me, for my men. And Ahimelech didn't fully understand what was going on. He didn't fully realize what he was doing in feeding David and his team of soldiers. But in this moment, he made an exception. He supported the anointed king's life and it would cost him his life. Saul would end up hearing what Ahimelech had done, and he would return to the town of Nod, and he would slaughter Ahimelech. And not only Ahimelech, but Saul in his insane rage actually killed everyone in the town of Nod. All for Ahimelech offering support with a little bit of food to his rival David. Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, was the only priest who escaped the massacre. And he ran to David and his soldiers for safety. He explained what had happened, and David would protect Abiathar the rest of his life. Jesus uses this account as an illustration to basically say, a king greater than David is here. God's chosen king, his anointed king for planet Earth, the Messiah, the one greater than David, he's here. And my men need to eat. And if God made a glaring exception for someone of lesser importance than me, what's wrong with me and my men eating to satisfy our hunger when we're not breaking any rules? This is like the strongest kind of argument that can be made in the form of a question. Right? God made an exception for an anointed king. I don't even need an exception made, and I'm a greater king. Wow. And he's going to go on and say, he's Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 27, he said to them, 
The Sabbath was actually made for people, not people for the Sabbath. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So in the instance of of the fasting, Jesus claimed to be the groom. And here, he claims to be the Son of Man and the Lord of the Sabbath. And in the third instance, he's actually going to demonstrate his power to fix all humanity. So the third instance begins in chapter 3, verse 1. And we'll end our reading with verse 6. Again, he entered the synagogue. I think this is probably the synagogue at Capernaum. It says, again, he entered. He had previously entered this synagogue in Mark 1.21. And you can actually stand in the remains of this synagogue today. You can stand on the same foundations that Jesus stood on. And a man was there with a withered hand. That means his hand was atrophied and deformed and unusable. And the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. That term accuse doesn't just mean they wanted to go talk bad about him. It means that they wanted to bring legal, formal charges against him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to those who were watching, let me ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? They didn't answer the question. They were silent. And he looked around, around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Jesus' mix of sorrow and anger, it's anger like James pointed out last week, is present in Mark 1.41. He's sorrowful and he's angry over their hardness of heart. And Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus speaks this miracle. He wills this miracle. He wasn't like a doctor who brought the man in and felt his hand and tried to reset it or something like that. He didn't do any physical work. He spoke it and willed it. And yet, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him that statement is amazing it shows the insanity of these people who want Jesus dead rather than want people healed but the fact that Herodians and Pharisees are uniting be like in our day saying like Antifa and neo-Nazis got together the extreme left and the extreme right united They unite because of their hatred of Jesus. It's shocking. Now, I said, if you're not a Jew, the point of these episodes might not be obvious. You might say, talking about fasting and Sabbaths, it's not not real clear. So I want to explain their their significance in three points, and in every point I'm going to offer application. So we've finished reading. Now we're going into explanation and application. First point is this. Jesus, the groom, came to restore humanity's joy. The first episode is really stressing the fact that Jesus is the groom, and he came to restore humanity's joy. When he's asked about why he and his disciples don't fast, he explains, because I'm the groom. My family and I, few weeks ago had the privilege of attending my nephew's wedding near Indianapolis. It was a day of joy. 
It was a day of celebration, lots of smiling and pictures. It was a day of dancing. It was a day of eating a little bit more cake than I should have. Let me tell you what we did not see at the reception. I didn't see anyone fasting. Have you ever been to a wedding reception and seen guests fasting? Some of you might say, I have a really weird family. (laughs) Maybe you've seen it. I haven't. Let me tell you what we didn't hear when the best man gave his speech. We didn't hear him saying, I hope you all have a great time in today's celebration. I'm going to go find a closet in which I can pray. I'm going to skip the rest of the reception. Have you ever heard the best man say in his speech, I'm going to skip the rest of the festivities, I just need to pray? Have you ever found the best man skipping the food and praying in a closet? (laughs) This is the humor with which Jesus asked the question, you ever see wedding guests skipping the meal when the celebration's on? No, that doesn't happen at weddings. See, for centuries, God's people had fasted at least on the Day of Atonement. That was a day of monumental, epic, memorable animal sacrifice. And it constantly pictured year after year how God would one day send his once-for-all sacrifice, who would make it possible for his people to live again, not face death, but to, to face life. They would live again. They would live forever in his very presence out of which they had been cast at Eden. The Day of Atonement anticipated this day when, when the once-for-all sacrifice would come and bring people back into the presence of God. And here Jesus basically says, what you all have been fasting for and praying for for centuries, it's finally here. I'm the one. I'm the one who can renew the joy of humanity. I'm the one who can end sin and death. I'm the one who's going to die for your sins. I'm going to reconcile you to God forever. Don't keep fasting for the groom to come. Celebrate that the groom is here. That's his point. You're not sorrowing with longing. The groom is here. He's standing in front of you. Celebrate. It's a time for celebration. See, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures and all of the Old Testament promises. And that's why he gives the two illustrations about patching clothes and making wine. He basically says, I'm not here to add to the old I'm here to bring in the new. I'm not here to add to the old covenant. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here to replace it with the new covenant. He came to fulfill all of the demands of the old covenant. And he came to establish the new. That's what the two illustrations mean. And we should all be saying, the new covenant, through what Jesus came to bring by his death and resurrection, I can be forgiven of all my sins. I can have a heart that's new, that's different, that actually wants to submit to to the God who made me. And I can be forever reconciled to him. That's the promises of the new covenant. Forgiven sin, changed heart, forever reconciliation with God. Jesus came to bring in the new. He came to fulfill the old and bring in the new. And that's why we should celebrate 
That's why we should be forever joyful. Now, how should this shape our lives, this first point? How does it apply to us? Well, according to this passage, our lives between the groom's first coming and second coming should actually be a mixture. It should be a mixture of celebratory joy and yet of sorrowful longing. Because the groom is not on earth right now, according to Mark 2.20, we live in an era where we should fast. Jesus' disciples should still fast. We should still occasionally deliberately forego meals. According to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, we should always do this without people knowing that we're doing it. We shouldn't trumpet it as if we're saying, I'm a holy person because I'm planning to fast this day and that day and everyone around me should know it because I'm a holy person. No, no one else should know about it. But you should occasionally and deliberately if you're under medical clearance to do so, some of you can't go for, for 12 hours wisely missing a meal, but if you're able to do it, you should occasionally forego a meal for the purpose of prayer. If you've never done it before, let me just encourage you, get out a couple promises of, of Jesus' second coming, skip a meal, maybe on Friday of this week, skip a dinner, and throughout the night on Friday, if you're able to do it with no one knowing, every time you experience hunger pains, cry out for Jesus's return. How long, Lord? And get up and eat Saturday morning and don't let anyone else know that you actually fasted that night. Give yourself to fasting, praying for the groom to return. Jesus says there should actually be sorrowful longing while the groom's away. Many American Christians think like fasting, it's like just sheer legalistic religiosity that has nothing to do with Jesus's disciples. That's not what Jesus said. If you've never thought about it, according to Mark 2.20, you should. Make plans, if you don't have them, to fast at some point in the next few months and long for the groom to return. Now, the passage also teaches that joy should also characterize the disciples of Jesus, because the groom has come. The groom came to earth. He died and rose again. So our lives should not be dominated by gloom, but by joy. Even though we're sorrowfully longing for the the king to return and bring an end to all pain and death, underneath it all, according to Paul, we should rejoice Rejoice in the Lord always. Underneath every sorrow should be a joy, a hope. Because the groom came. He inaugurated the new covenant. He paved the way into the presence of God so anyone who follows him can experience eternal joy in the kingdom that's going to take place on earth. If you've got that inheritance set out before you, how can anything really steal your ultimate joy? Underneath all sorrow is joy. Underneath every one of our personal sorrows, it's not saying that you should be smiling all the time, but just underneath every tear that falls should be a foundation of joy. The groom has come. He has proved that he can bring an end to sin and death. And I'm going to follow him until he makes good on every promise. There is a joy underneath every sorrow. That's why our songs on Sunday shouldn't only be laments. There should be laments. And yet, 
Some of our songs should be celebratory and we should try to sing them. We should cry as we sing them because our groom came. Our groom came. Our groom has made joy and eternal joy possible. There should be sorrow and celebration. The second point is this. Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, came to give humanity rest. The groom came to restore humanity's joy. The Lord of the Sabbath came to give humanity rest. Got to go all the way back to creation and starting the explanation on this one because God created the world very intentionally in six days. Six days God created the world. He rested on the seventh day of creation very deliberately. He wanted all of human life and human history to unfold in seven-day weeks that involved, generally, six days of work with a built-in vacation day. And that day off, that day of not working, was to remind people that life is not all about work. Life is about climactically, centrally. Life is about relationship, and especially relationship with the God who made you. The Sabbath day was to be a delightful day that continually shouted, life's greatest good is not working a job. Life's greatest good is knowing God. The Sabbath was to be a constant reminder, life's greatest good is God, knowing God, being right with him. Now, as a total side note, studies have consistently shown that humans who try to work seven days a week are less productive, more prone to depression, and face major heart problems than those who work five or six days a week. People who intentionally take regular planned time off from work are more productive. Studies show it constantly. From our vantage point now, on this side of Jesus' first coming, we know that God commanded the Sabbath to point to Jesus. He commanded a weekly day of rest to point to Jesus. See, the Sabbath highlighted the goodness of relating with God. After Adam's fall, there's only one way that you can relate with God. It's through the sacrifice offered by the priest he appoints in the place he appoints. And all of that was foreshadowing Jesus. The only way that you can actually have rest in the presence of God again is through Jesus. He said it very famously in Matthew, I came to give you rest for your souls, saying the Sabbath points to me. And Paul says it bluntly in Colossians 2, the Sabbath was a shadow. Jesus is the substance. He's the, the real thing. The Sabbath was pointing to him, right? So now, laid a foundation. Mark 2. In this incident, Jesus is the one to whom the Sabbath had always pointed and he's getting accused of illegal activity on the Sabbath. <laughs> it's humorous. Jesus responds by asking those who are accusing him a question. What do you think about David, God's chosen king, going into that tabernacle when his men were hungry? He asked them this question. And as I said it in the explanation, what he's stressing is, like David, I'm God's chosen king except I'm only the ultimate king. I'm the one greater than David. And like David, me and my men are hungry. But unlike David, me and my men aren't even breaking a rule. What do you think of David? 
He's stressing his identity as God's chosen king for the planet. And he concludes in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Hmm. The Sabbath was made to serve humanity's greatest need. Rest in the presence of God. And Jesus here is claiming to be God's chosen king over all humanity to bring humanity into that rest. Hmm. James pointed out last week, according to Daniel 7, the son of man. The son of man is a title used in Daniel 7. That title indicates that Jesus is God's chosen king to rule forever on earth and be worshipped by people of every nation, language, and tribe. Jesus is the son of man. He's God's chosen king for the planet. And the bottom line point that Jesus is making here is that if you follow me, you enter God's rest. You have found God's rest. You have experienced the fulfillment to which every Sabbath day of every week has been pointing. You found the son of man who can give you rest forever in the presence of God. So I just apply the second point before moving on to the third and say, if you have never turned from being your own authority and submitted your life to Jesus of Nazareth, I urge you to do so now. Submit your life to the authority of God's chosen king. Stop trying to work to earn God's favor. Rest. Christ did it all for you. He perfectly obeyed. And then he died a punishment he didn't deserve. He can credit to you his account of righteousness and take on himself your punishment. Stop working. Experience rest for your soul. Jesus can give it to you. Only Jesus can give it to you. Every Sabbath day was pointing ahead to the rest that you could experience in the presence of God through Jesus. Third point, Jesus the healer came to fix humanity's deformities. He came to restore humanity's joy and to give humanity rest and to fix humanity's deformities. This is the third and climactically controversial incident. And here Jesus publicly heals a a man's deformed arm on the Sabbath. He again asks the legalists questions. He says, let me ask you, is it right to do good or to do harm? Is it right to save life or to kill it? And in asking these questions, Jesus is highlighting the significance of what he's about to do. He's not simply saying, I can heal this man's arm. He's saying, I have come to do good. I have come to save life. I have come to to fix what's wrong. He's stating it generally because this specific incident of healing is to prove a general point that he has come to do good and to save human life. Ever since Adam chose to rebel in the garden, humans have experienced life under the curse and we still experience it today. In physical terms, we are deformed. We experience diseases. 
and disabilities and death. In spiritual terms, we are deformed. We are naturally proud and self-centered. Relationships naturally lead to conflict. We do damage to ourselves by our choices. We do damage to other people by our choices. And spiritually, we're weighed down with guilt and shame. We go through human life with physical and spiritual deformities. What's so funny when we read a passage like this is we look at, we look at it and we say, how could the Pharisees be so dumb? And what we miss is we and our culture are exactly like them. Our culture believes that Jesus is toxic. If you have not turned your life to Jesus this morning, you believe that Jesus the healer is actually toxic, that he will ruin your life. That's how all of us come into the world. We don't want Jesus' authority. No. Our culture would rather affirm sexual immorality than confront it as societally damaging. If you want to see that sexual immorality is societally damaging, pick up one of Dave Ayers' books. Sociologist Dave Ayers has tracked it over 40 or 50 years. You don't believe that sexual immorality is, is damaging? Just look what it does to kids' psyches. But our culture would rather affirm sexual immorality than confront it. Our culture would rather affirm your right to define your own existence than say you need to submit to Jesus' authority. If you tell someone that they need to submit to Jesus' authority, it's hate speech. You're doing psychological violence to them. We live in a culture who, like the Pharisees, view Jesus' authority as toxic. So as our final application, I want to say Christians, we need to respond to opposition. We need to respond to opposition just like Jesus did. Look at Mark 3, 5. It says, Jesus was angered and grieved by people's hard-heartedness, and yet he didn't fear upsetting them. Instead, he chose to love them in the way he spoke with them and what he would do for them. So let's just think about these three areas. Anger. Anger. Like Jesus, we need to be righteously angered by the hard-heartedness of our culture. Our culture prioritizes adult freedoms no matter how damaging, even murderous they are, especially to children. This should anger us. But this is an anger that's righteous. Righteous anger is self-controlled, never out of control. Righteous anger is never destructive, but constructive. As Jesus' disciples, we should be angered by the hard-heartedness of our culture that will reject Jesus at the cost of people's lives. Second, like Jesus, we should be characterized by deep sorrow. You see that in verse 5. 
We need to sorrow over our culture's hard-heartedness. Our culture's hard-heartedness should lead us, like I said earlier in the message, to regular times of prayer and fasting. Jesus, how long till you return and end the sorrows of the self-centered destructiveness of our culture? Third, love. Our anger and sorrow should lead to love. We should love others and speak to others and not fear their reactions. We should speak the truth of the gospel about Jesus' good authority and Jesus' saving power. He came to do good. He came to save life. And we should speak this message no matter how much people hate it, no matter how much people hate us for it. And even when people despise us, we should follow the footsteps of our Savior. And we should be willing to lay our lives down for them. What's so remarkable is that if you just step back from this incident in chapter 3 and you look at Mark 1 through 16, Jesus is going to die for the people who want to destroy him. He doesn't run from them. He confronts them. He heals this man, shows love in that way. He doesn't fear their hatred. And he's going to lay his life down for them. That's instructive. We don't move away from our culture that views Jesus as toxic. We try to love them. We try to do whatever we can to, to share the message about Jesus' good authority and his saving power with them. Now, these three episodes are recounted back to back to back. And by pairing them like this, weaving them together, Mark emphasizes this truth. This is the main point. Jesus has come to redeem humanity. He's come to give his disciples, those who choose to follow him, joy, rest, and life. He's come as the groom to give joy. He's come as Lord of the Sabbath to give rest. He's come as the, the healer to save life. If you follow Jesus, you will experience the joy and the rest and the life that God created humanity to experience. It is found in Jesus, only in Jesus. Don't let go of Jesus. We were singing earlier, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. You say, but I've been through times in my life where the rivers of sorrow were, were overflowing. I was crying. I couldn't stop. I was grieving day in, day out, year in, year out. What do you mean the rivers of sorrow won't overflow? The rivers of sorrow won't take away your faith in Jesus. That would be overflowing. If you gave up on Jesus... If you walked away from Jesus, no, God was with you through the trial to keep you holding on to Jesus, keep holding on to him. If you have Jesus, you have found what humanity was created to experience, life in the presence of God, joy and rest in the presence of God. You experience hints of it now, you will experience it forever in the kingdom. 
If you're following Jesus, you have experienced what God intended humanity to experience. You've at least tasted it. You will experience it in fullness in time. But if you reject Jesus, you cut yourself off from the only source of eternal human joy, rest, and life. If you reject Jesus, you cut yourself off from the only source of eternal human joy, rest, and life. Jesus redeems humanity. That's Mark's point. And after I pray, we're going to sing, probably many of us through tears, Jesus saves.